Hebrews chapter 12, slowly getting through Hebrews chapter 12. There is so much in these last couple chapters of Hebrews 12 and 13. And I really had good intentions to get this section done in two sermons and it just isn't happening. So we're going to try and finish it this morning and I think we will if I finish chapter 12. But there's, as I said earlier, some tough stuff in here and particularly the issue of bitterness. But we'll talk about that in a little while. We're going to talk about Esau. Um, who is an interesting character in Scripture and in Jewish tradition is a despised person uh, by the rabbis and what they would teach about him. Last week we started this section with verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And that's what we're going to continue today, what that looks like to make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I'd like for us to read again verses 12 to 17, and then we'll look specifically at verses 15 to 17. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, reading down through verse 17, I'll read aloud and invite you to follow along. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. For my birthday, it just made me think of it, for my birthday this past week, Terry got me um, a uh, painting by a local artist here named Julia something or other. She lives up in Robbins area. And uh, uh, it has coneflowers on it, which I love coneflowers, so she doesn't. So that was a major step of love for her to buy me a painting with coneflowers. But on it was the verse that talks about steadfast love of the Lord from uh, Lamentations. And I, I love that phrase and I love to hear you say that and I hope you never forget that every time we read scripture we are in a place to consider the steadfast love of the Lord what he has done for us in Christ and who he is making us to be to become like Christ it's easy to start to say things and do things and they become rituals and we don't even think about sometimes what we're saying or doing anymore because they've just become part of our life So as I said a moment ago, last week we looked at verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now if we were in a classroom setting, I'd be asking you questions and hoping for response. But that phrase, see to it, if you remember, was speaking of a corporate responsibility we have. It's not something that is reserved for elders, 
although it is the word, it is a word that's used in two other places. It's used three times in the New Testament. The other two places it's used to translate as overseer. When you've read your New Testament Bible and it speaks of the uh, uh, overseer, it's that it's a form of that word, seeing to it, to watch over one another. But here too, specifically, the elders alone is speaking to the body of Christ. That we have a responsibility as a body to be overseers of one another, to watch out for each other, to look after each other, not just physically, but spiritually. See to it. And the thing that we're supposed to be watching out for in each other's lives is that none of us fail to obtain the grace of God. We talked about what that meant. Possibly there were two possibilities. One being uh, to failing to obtain the grace of the Lord is someone who comes along and presents as religious and makes a profession, but never has trusted in Christ and, and begins to make choices and goes in a life direction that ultimately leads away from Christ and leads into dis- uh, uh, disobedience. A pursuit of the cravings of the flesh and the cravings of the eyes and finding a person's identity in self-exaltation. The second possible view of failing to obtain the grace of God refers to possibly someone in the race falling back because they're not depending upon the grace of God to endure. They're trying to do things in their own strength and they're trying to to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps spiritually. And whichever the case may be, and I don't personally argue either point as the right point, um, I don't know for sure. But either way, we are to step in when we see someone beginning to pursue disobedience, we're to step in and say, this is becoming a pattern of life for you. How can I help you? What can I do for you? How can I help you walk with Christ? Come this way with me to pursue Christ's likeness. And again, it's not restricted to the elders. Watching out over one another is a body responsibility. It cannot be accomplished by the elders alone because we don't know sometimes what's going on. And A lot of time, we don't have time, honestly, because of the needs. And as I said last week, right now, I'm buried. I don't know how else to say it. I'm buried. And uh, I was watching, last night we watched Adam's Family movie together. We, We try to stay really up to speed with current movies, you know, to know what's going on. So we're always watching them a decade after they came out or somewhere around there. But uh, there's a scene in the movie where Wednesday buries her brother Pugsley in a grave. And the mother says, have you been burying your brother again? And so then you see this hand coming out of the soil, trying to pull himself out from being buried alive. And I thought sometimes I feel like that. Maybe you do too. But as I've said many times over the years, here and in other places, if all of us are coming together looking to be encouraged by others. Probably nobody's going to be encouraged by anyone. 
because we're all coming seeking something for ourselves. We live in a day and age in church life where it's become acceptable and appropriate to be consumers and, and saying, this is my box, and so does your church give me everything in my box? This is my list. Does your church give me everything that's on this list? And we do church shopping now. Instead of, this is a place where I can minister to other people. And, and lo and behold, this seems like a place where there's a lot of opportunity to minister to other people. And God has an expectation for me. He's given me gifts to minister to other people. So how can I look to minister to other people in this body? If everybody is coming, looking to minister to and encourage others, and doing that throughout the week, no one is going to be left behind. No one is going to miss out. But sadly, especially in America, with our consumeristic mentality, we're all coming looking to be encouraged and blessed and walking away wondering why it didn't happen. Because no one is encouraging and blessing. So seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, I'm confronted by that as an individual and I have to ask myself, how am I involved in doing that in the lives of the people God has called me to minister to? How am I accomplishing that? That's one of those quick and powerful parts of Scripture that if we're honest with, pierces us and confronts us as to who we are as people. To talk about three areas here that I think are all interconnected um, and are results of someone failing to obtain the grace of God. The first is a root of bitterness. The second is sexual immorality. And the third is unholy. But I think that they are a trio that walk together. And I think that one of them, in essence, can lead to the other two. I think that a root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. It causes trouble for the individual. And it causes trouble community-wise. And we'll talk about what that looks like and what that's all about. But as I talked about last week, watching over one another, I said that it requires transparency. It requires honesty. I found in churches over the years as both a uh, pastor and a non-pastor, and I'm 61. As of this week, I am officially 61 this past week. I spent, I've been a pastor this summer. I will have been a pastor for 20 years. For 41 of my 61 years, I sat where you sat. I know the games that go on in churches. I know how it works. I've been a part of those games. And, and I've, I've played the everything's okay, I'm good. Uh, but I want everybody to figure out what's going on. I'm good, how you doing? I'm fine, I'm good, I had a good week. We play that little game, we put on our little mask. Why isn't anyone talking to me about my problem? Because you've been telling everybody you're fine. 
Well, I'm not telling everybody I'm fine anymore. Are you being really honest about what's going on? Are you reaching out for help? It's, it's a two-way street. Seeing this process of seeing to it is a two-way street of being honest and seeking help when it's needed. But there's this thing that I talked about in relation to that last week called transparency, opening up, being honest. And I would say Christians as a whole are pretty bad about that, but one of the reasons they're pretty bad about it is because of the judgment that comes the other direction. That the, the horror and the shock when someone says, you know what, I'm struggling with this thing. And, and then the distancing that starts to take place. Sometimes that distancing takes place simply because people don't know how to respond to it. They don't know how to help with it. And, and sometimes what you need is to just listen and be present to hear when you don't know. I, I had to learn as a pastor, I hate to even say this, but I had to learn as a pastor, I can't be totally honest about what things I'm struggling with with most people because it's too shocking that a pastor would actually struggle with anything like that. So you learn, you just don't say certain things. You don't talk about certain things because the pedestal crumbles and people can't handle that. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. We need to be able to be honest, which means people can't be shocked. We also need to seek help when we need help. But we need to be transparent. We need to be in each other's lives, intimacy of relationships. And as I said last week, I can't be in everybody's life in an equal way. It's not possible. I can't, I, I don't have enough time in the day and I made a decision long ago that I'm not even gonna try to do that anymore. It requires all of us being involved in each other's lives. I am not Jesus. I am not Jesus. And what you need is Jesus. And I make a horrible mistake when I try to be Jesus in your life. When I move you to a place of being dependent upon me. Now, don't hear, Eric always used to say, don't hear what I'm not saying. And I love that phrase. I'm not saying that I don't want to be in your life. What I am saying is we all have to be in each other's lives, developing intimacy of relationship with one another. Not just one or two, but striving to be in people's lives as much as we possibly can. And third, as I mentioned last week, it requires love. It can't, Northbrook or any other church should not be a place where we have righteous police and nitpicking. And every time someone sins or makes a different choice than us, we're all over them. This, this 
interacting with each other has to begin with an understanding of, I am a sinner saved by grace in lowliness of mind, coming along someone, alongside someone else to help them move forward in their struggle with sin. I struggle with sin, you struggle with sin. That doesn't mean we have an attitude of, hey, we all struggle with sin. Let's have a good time talking about it. It means that I come in humility and gentleness, hoping to help you walk forward. Today, I want us to look now at what is manifested when we fail to obtain the grace of God. The root of bitterness that springs up, sexual immorality and unholiness or profanity like Esau. Roots of bitterness. There came a day in my my life where this word all of a sudden, or this phrase all of a sudden kind of jumped off the page at me. I know you've had those kind of experiences too where you're reading the Bible and all of a sudden you see something and it's just like, I never noticed that before. Roots of bitterness. Some of you garden here. And I've, I've talked about this before, but I love to garden. Uh, well, let me take that back. I love to plant things. I don't like weeding. I don't like the work that comes afterwards. So I like to plant things and I'm... I'm confessing here my wife weeds things and she's been really good at that I've learned to weed and I do some weeding and I feel guilty when I see her weeding which I think means I love her but typically I go out and buy plants and then she figures out where to put them you know so now the question is when I buy a rose where's that going to go and if I can't come up with a place where it's going to go then I'm supposed to not buy it Okay, I love roses. That, that's been a hobby of mine for a long time. I currently have about th- three dozen roses, 36 roses in our yard, which was supposed to be downsizing, which it is because I've had up to 50 roses before in my yard. So we are downsizing. But now I have a problem in that I entered a contest with a rose grower called David Austin, and I won. I never win anything, but I won a $150 gift certificate from David Austin for roses, which is at least four roses. And so everybody's excited for me, but where are they going to go? And then Alyssa bought a house. God bless her, she bought a house. Now there's more room for roses, so I can plant more roses. But I love to plant them. I don't like to weed. But what I've learned, and I think I talked about this before, at least in the immersion group and maybe out here. Creeping Charlie. How many of you have heard of Creeping Charlie? It's a scourge. We never knew about it until we came to Iowa. In Washington State, if you go to the nurseries, they actually sell little things of Creeping Charlie and Creeping Jenny for you to put in your flower pots. And I was just like, seriously, you guys plant this stuff? And, And they were like, yeah, it doesn't grow around here. And I said, man, I can sell you tons of Creeping Charlie at a better rate than what you're getting, I guarantee you. It's terrible stuff. It gets into your lawn, it gets into your flower beds, and you can pull the tops off all you want, but it keeps coming back from the roots. You have to get rid of those roots. But what one day struck me about this statement 
is that the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, beware the seeds of bitterness that they take root. See, he says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. The way he says that, the way he writes that, means that roots of bitterness already exist in all of us. It's not seeds waiting to germinate and grow into a plant. In every one of us, there are roots of bitterness that exist, like creeping Charlie under the ground. And it's just looking for the opportunity to spring up. I think it's fascinating that he doesn't say, tear out the roots of bitterness. He says, keep those roots of bitterness from springing up. We could talk all day about whether or not that's a right approach, but it's what the writer of Hebrews by the Holy Spirit's inspiration wrote. In each of us, there are roots of bitterness where seeds have been planted and those seeds have taken root. And they're waiting to spring up into defiling flowers and spread the bitterness into other people's souls. So I was thinking about this. I thought, what causes bitterness? You know, one of the questions that I asked myself as I was studying this is, am I a bitter person? Where are there roots of bitterness in me? What does bitterness look like? How does bitterness manifest manifest itself? So I thought I would look in a very reliable source about bitterness and, you know, profound and reliable source. So I went on the internet and Googled bitterness just to see what I would find. And it was fascinating. There's just a ton of stuff on bitterness out there. But one of the questions I had is what causes bitterness? What causes that? If if we're going to be able to identify roots that are there, we have to know what causes it. One of the most common responses is bitterness is caused by anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly. It's resentment. Anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly. Resentment. So my dad, when I was growing up, always used to tell me, life isn't fair, get used to it. And I would say, but that's not fair. Life isn't fair, get used to it. So right there, being treated unfairly, if life's not fair, all of us have been treated unfairly. It probably wouldn't take you very long if you were sitting and you may already have done it. Have I ever been treated unfairly? Have you ever been treated unfairly? We could probably spend a few hours today listening to each other's stories of how we've been treated unfairly in life. And seeds are planted over and over and over again. And those roots grew in our souls. As we think about how we were treated unfairly and the anger and the disappointment grows up in us. 
I know one person went to several Christian counselors who all told her that she was bitter, who finally decided that they were going to go to a non-Christian counselor because the Christian counselors just didn't know what they were talking about with her problems in life. So she went to a non-Christian counselor who after listening to an hour looked, looked at her and said, I can tell you what your problem is. You're a bitter old woman. And if you stop to listen to her tell her life story, one of the biggest moments in her life was when she was eight years old and her parents had a, another child She'd been the only child and gave her teddy bear to the younger child. And she was still mad in her 80s at her parents for taking her teddy bear and giving it to her younger sibling when she was eight years old. It would just come out. For all those decades, there was this sense in her of anger and resentment at her parents. She was mad at them for taking away her teddy bear. He said, well, that was, they were bad parents. Well, they probably were in that moment, just like we all are. But the reality was those seeds had just grown roots and those roots had just flourished and everything about her just polluted everybody around her. Another thing that I read, Someone that said, the truth is, bitterness is all about hate and anger, so a bitter person seems as if they're always unhappy at everything and everyone. They can't find any good in any situation because they've just been consumed with that anger. And the person went on to say, the reason why they're like that is often because of something from the past that has hurt them. By the way, I wasn't going to Christian sites for this. I was, I was reading just a lot of everyday comments. Another person said, the world is full of people who have not dealt with an old hurt. They look for things to criticize, people to find fault with, and ways to justify the way they feel. Have you ever seen people who are hypercritical? Generally, they're bitter people. So there's this theme that I kept coming across, hurt, unfairness, that produces hate and anger. And it manifests itself in ultimately not only poisoning other people, but they're critical and they blame everybody else for the way they are and the way their life is. And that's what Hebrews 12 says. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The bitterness, what he's saying here is we're in this race, and this bitterness, when it flourishes, when it grows up and it flowers, and it produces new seeds, the bitterness will spread to other runners in the race. And he says the body of Christ will be troubled will be troubled. What does he mean by that? Well, in order to understand what he means by that, I think we should go back to Deuteronomy chapter 29 because that's what he's quoting. So if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 29, and we'll look at what he has to say. Moses is re-giving the law to people, to the people. 
is giving it to the second generation. This is the generation that was not killed off in the wilderness. They're on the cusp of entering the promised land. And in verse 17, uh, let's begin at verse 16, actually. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. <clears throat> and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, <clears throat> lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which God has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods which they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So what does it mean that it'll sprout up and defile and trouble? Deuteronomy 29 gives us a pretty good example of what it means that it'll defile and trouble. This bitterness that springs up leads people away from truth and after idols. It leads them away from God and after false gods. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boasting in what we have and who we are. And according to Deuteronomy, God wasn't going to tolerate that in his people. They, they were people who said, they were people who did not have a heart for God to begin with. They were under the covenant through a ritual that they had performed or had performed on them. They were people who were under the covenant, but in their heart didn't have a love or a following of God. They kept the rituals, 
but there wasn't anything there personally in relation to God and who he was and loyalty to him. And this bitterness caused them to, to commit spiritual adultery and to pursue other gods to the point that it infiltrated all of the people. That bitterness spread out from people and infiltrated other people and defiled them. And the trouble ultimately was that God sent his people into captivity. And you have scorched earth behind them. Now, does God do that with his children today? No. But are there people among God's children who are members of churches, identify religiously, but are consumed with bitterness, who are defiling people around them? Yes. And does it bring trouble on the body? Yes. And have we seen that at Northbrook? Yes. Not just since my time, before my time. People with poisonous lips because they're, and tongues because their souls are poisoned with bitterness, because of resentment over expectations that went unfulfilled or statements that seemed unfair or unkind. And they, they held on to that hurt. And I've, I've heard a lot about the greenhouse effect in our, in our world around us. And I adopted that a long time ago to talk about the greenhouse effect inside of us. That we build nice little greenhouses around our hurt. And we nurture those roots and we fertilize those roots and we encourage those roots as we, as we think about what was done to us and how unfair it was or what wasn't done for us. Again, our expectations of others or our hurt because of what was said by another. Whether in the body of Christ or in our families or at our workplace. And we let that, we let that fester and we water it inside that nice little greenhouse and we get the greenhouse effect of flowers growing up to us that seem beautiful and they justify our actions and we blame everybody else for everything and that defilement comes out of our polluted tongues because our hearts are polluted we lead other people away from Christ as we walk away from Christ. You know, I think that if we're going to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, if we're going to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up inside of us into flourishing flowers that defile, it needs to start in our own self. I have no right to come and talk to you about your bitterness if I'm not going to deal with it myself. And it means that it's very subtle and natural to us to become bitter. 
It's something that we have to be on guard about. And when, when we feel disappointment, when we feel hurt, when we feel anger at another person or a circumstance that makes us feel that way against God, and let's be honest, maybe, again, I'm the only sinner in this room in this area, but I struggle with some of the choices God's made in my life. And I have to seek God's gracious help to kill those stems that are growing up and get, to get it down before it not only defiles me, but I begin to defile other people. He goes on that this root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Also, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So a second danger is sexual immorality. There's, there's debate on this, what he's talking about here. Some believe that because he's quoting from Deuteronomy 29, and the immediate context is idolatry, that what he's referring to here is spiritual infidelity, the pursuit and nurturing of idols in one's life. And honestly, after studying this and reading this, I would lean that way but the reality is that nothing justifies sexual immorality more than what another person has done to me or, or not done for me that I expected. Whatever the case may be, spiritual or physical infidelity, it would seem that there is an idol in place that a person is nurturing probably because of bitterness from something in the past that has driven them to pursue and worship another idol. Whichever it may be, spiritual or physical or both, the result is devastating in the lives of those who are caught in the sin and it's devastating in the lives of those who surround them. Let's just talk about spiritual infidelity for a moment. If your life has been given over to an idol, which is so easy for all of us that we don't often even realize we're pursuing idols, but often those idols are related to something that we didn't get, that we think we should have, or something that was done to us that we think was unfair and hurtful, If we're nurturing those, we're going after idols because that thing that's in the center of it is what we're really worshiping. How is the outgrowth of that idolatry affecting your children? How is the outgrowth of that idolatry affecting your marriage? How is the outgrowth of that idolatry affecting people who are looking to you for spiritual leadership in in their life? How is the outgrowth of that idolatry affecting the people around us who are unbelievers? As Christ followers, are we validating their idolatry? Are we actually 
encouraging them to make choices that will send them to the pit of hell. And third, the final danger is unholy living. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Esau. This passage here talking about Esau caused me a long time ago to go back to looking at the story of Esau. And if you want to see one really messed up family in the Bible, look at Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. That is a messed up bunch of people. You want to talk about dysfunctional families. That was a dysfunctional family. But in short, in the story is found in Genesis 25, begins in Genesis 25, but just to give you a, a recap of it, Isaac and Rebecca are married. Remember that story? He's the son of promise, and wonderful Rebecca is met by the servant at the fountain, and it's just a beautiful love story. It should be made into a Hallmark movie. It's just so wonderful how they loved each other so much. And, and Isaac and Rebecca is barren. She's unable to have a child, and Isaac prays for her, and she conceives. And while she's pregnant, she has what I, what I call, you know, there was the rumble in the jungle for those of you who are old enough to remember Ollie and Fraser. Uh, for those of you who are not, I'm sorry, you missed a lot of good things. But there was the rumble in the jungle. This was the battle in the belly. Uh, Rebecca actually reaches a point where, where things are so tumultuous inside of her and she doesn't know that she has twins. And it's not just a little bit of kicking and pushing. It's just like something's going on in there all the time. And she goes to God and asks him what's going on. And she's told by God that, they're going, that she has twins. They're going to battle in life just like they are in her belly. And that the older will serve the younger. Turns everything on its head. And that's an interesting um, theme through skip Scripture. Uh, there's a book on it called Redemptive Reversals, which is just traces through Scripture all these places where the, in God's plan of redemption, the, the story is turned upside down. And in this particular place, the older one, who should be served by the younger one, is flipped around, so Esau is going to serve Jacob. Esau is the first of the twins. He comes out, and as he comes out, Jacob is holding on to his heel, hanging on to his ankle if you remember that part of the story. And so he's named Jacob, which actually means heel grabber and also can mean cheater. What a way to start out. What a name for your kid. Just, ah, he's a cheater. That's what we're going to call him. So we've got Esau and Jacob. Esau comes out, and I was reading this this week in a different translation just to see how it told the story. And in that translation, it said that Esau was red when he was born, and he, he was like he had fur on him. He was so hairy, he looked furry like an animal when he came out. Uh, it made me immediately, don't take this the wrong way, Tim and Ellen, but, but Samuel just has a ton of hair, which anybody, all of you who know Samuel knows that he has a ton of hair, and I'm jealous of him. 
because I don't, and all my grandkids and my kids were born bald as could be. But he has a ton of hair. Imagine that hair all over his body and curly like an animal, like a poodle or something. And everybody would be just going, ew, that's gross. And that was Esau, you know, red skin and fur. That was Esau. And he liked to hunt. He liked to be out in the outdoors. <clears throat> and there was Jacob, and Jacob was, was a homebody. He liked staying at home. Now, some people want to paint him as kind of girly girl or uh, effeminate or a mama's boy. But Jacob is the guy, don't forget, who wrestled with God through the night and slept on a rock for a pillow. So I don't think he was a wimp. He just liked to be around the house and enjoyed his mom. But one day, Esau comes home and he's starving hungry. And so, so Jacob says, uh, I've got this food. You know, Esau smells it and says, give me some of that. And Jacob says, well, I've got this bowl of stew. You give me your birthright, which is inheritance for all the way back to Abraham. The promises of God to Abraham. And Jacob says, give me that and I'll give you this bowl. And Esau says, what good is that going to do to me to, to, give, to keep my birthright if I'm going to starve to death? So give me the food. You can have my birthright. And Jacob says, swear it with an oath. Cheater. He's a cheater. Living up to his name. And Esau swears with an oath to give away his birthright. All the promises and blessings of God ultimately bound up in that. All the rights as the firstborn. He gives it over for a bowl of soup. You know, when you think about Jacob, Jacob should have recognized his brother's weakness. He did know his brother's weakness. He knew that his brother lived for his belly, for physical gratification, for instant gratification. But instead of recognizing his brother's weakness and and helping him with that, he took advantage of it for his own purposes and exploited his brother. He should have encouraged his brother to value the birthright. He should have trusted God for the future. He should have believed in God's promises that, that had been made to his mother. They took things into his own hands. And then the story goes on. Isaac goes on through life having sold off his birthright. And when, he, when Isaac or Esau sold it off, Isaac, when he gets old, wants to now give a blessing to Esau. And it's like he knows that the birthright is gone. He's not talking about the birthright. He's talking about a separate blessing that normally was connected to the birthright. And he wants to give that blessing to Esau. He had to know what God had said to Rebekah. He had to have known that, but he was going to bypass that. And he should have known that Esau did not have the character to be the spiritual leader of the family. But instead, he wants to give that to Esau because Esau was his favorite, which is what the story tells us. Esau was Isaac's favorite. Parenting tip, do not have favorites, okay? Low parenting tip there. Love them. You might love one more than another, but they should never know that. Okay? But Isaac tells him, go out and kill some game for me, bring it back, make it for me, and I'll give you the blessing. 
which is really a weird thing there if you think about it. It's a tit for tat. I'll give you the blessing. You bring me my last bowl of really good food. Why didn't you just give him the blessing? It's another thing you can chase out someday maybe if you want to. But Jacob tricks his brother by going in. His mom, Rebecca, hears it. She says, this is what's going to happen. You've got to get the blessing. So I'll make some food. You take it into him. Here's his clothes so you'll smell like him. She puts lamb's wool on his arms. She puts skins on his arms which tells you how hairy, nasty Esau was. That's just gross. And, and they trick Isaac, and the, and the blessing is given to Jacob. Esau finds out what's been lost, not only the birthright, but the blessing, and the events then can't be changed. It's too late. And that's what he tells us here. Don't be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. There's a lot of debate about what that means. I'll just say this. There are choices we make in life that cannot be undone and they have ramifications on others that cannot be undone. And while we may go forward in obedience, it often leaves damage in its wake. And no matter how bad we feel or how hard we try to remedy that, there are things that just cannot be undone. And the warning is not to let that bitterness grow to the point that it results in idolatry and results in choices. Stop it now. Stop it now. When you feel that hurt begin to well up inside of you, when you feel that bitterness begin to grow, it isn't enough to just tamp it down. You've got to go to God and say, God, I'm fighting with this again. I need your help. I, I want to defeat this. Help me, and I'm choosing to focus on your sovereignty in my life. I, like all of you, have suffered a lot of injustices in life. And it's not hard for me to name them off. The question is, how am I going to respond to those? Because if I don't, do I understand the ramifications, not only in my life, but other people's lives? Esau was characterized as a person who lived for immediate gratification of his body and because of that he gave up the most valuable thing he had for a bowl of soup. And he's referred to as one who despised the promises of God in exchange to soothe his stomach for a moment. And he also evidenced bitterness because there's a point where Rebecca says to Isaac, I don't want Jacob to marry any of the women from around here. Find, send, send out to my uncle to find someone in his country for Jacob to marry. I don't want him marrying these women around here. And Esau heard that and specifically went and married multiple women from around there just to spite his mother. That's an act of bitterness. 
beating back at her for what he perceived that she had done to him. So the question is, have you ever been hurt? And the answer is, yes. Have you ever been treated unfairly? And the answer is, yes. Do those hurts and unfair actions of others come up in your mind and you feel that hurt and that unfairness all over again? I would guess yes. Are you building a greenhouse for it? It will destroy you. It will lead you to idolatry. It will lead you into immorality. It will lead you into despising the things of God. It'll turn your heart in the wrong direction. And it's not just about you. It's about everyone else. I'll be honest with you. This is a major battle for me. It's a huge battle for me. And it's been worse since I've been a pastor. And any pastor will tell you they've had plenty of opportunities for unfairness and hurt in their lives. I don't say that for you to feel sorry for me. I say that so that you understand transparency that it's a problem for me. I'm 61 years old. I don't have a lot of years left. I badly want to finish well. I can't finish well if I build greenhouses for hurts and unfairness in the past. And you can't either. For me, probably another couple decades. For you, it might be 40 more, 50 more years. Don't let the bitterness grow. I say that as kindly and lovingly as I possibly can. Rest in God's sovereignty. Thank Him for how it's changed your perspective of life and how you should not treat people. Ask Him for power to grow in spite of the hurts and the unfairness. Ask Him for power to treat people the way you should treat people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to walk on this earth and to experience all of the things that we experience. Over and over again, he was called a bastard. And I can't imagine growing up with that kind of an identity, especially in that culture. Over and over again, his mother was seen as immoral and his father was seen as immoral. And we know that he loved them dearly. I can't imagine growing up with that. He was rejected by his brothers and sisters. We're told that. They mocked him.
And as he went out to proclaim the good news of the gospel that you loved the world so much that you had given your only begotten son, he was ignored and the authorities sought to shut him up. He was betrayed by the people closest to him. He saw thousands of people walk away from him because of one message. And Father, I thank you that we have a high priest who is merciful and gracious to us because he, in every way, was tested like we are. Father, thank you that he understands our hurts and he understands the injustices that have been done to us that he understands the lies that have been spoken and Father I pray that you would help us to want to be more like Jesus to respond in gentleness and lowliness. To want to be more like Him. And so God, this morning I again ask for myself and I ask for these people that You've gathered together that we would be people who want to be more like Jesus and we won't nurture bitterness Help us to value Christ-likeness more than anything else in our life. Help us to have victory over revenge. Help us to have patience when people are unfair. Help us to trust you when we cannot be all that people want us to be. Most of all, Father, help us not to chase after idols. Help us to treasure what Jesus has done for us, what you've done for us, and what the Holy Spirit is doing in us more than anything this temporal world offers us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to finish well. In your son's name, amen.